Today's show brought to you by our friends at Monmouth Park. Haskell Day coming up this weekend. Monmouth is hosting a $1,000 handicapping contest, the Haskell Challenge. $1,000 buy-in, as I mentioned, online contest only through ExpressBet and TVG. Players must register with Brian Skirka, who you've heard many times on these airwaves, in advance. Bskirka at monmouthpark.com. Going to be BC, BC seats, NHC seats, and cash prizes. So much going on featuring the million-dollar grade1tvg.com, Haskell, the Grade 1 United Nations, plus three other graded stakes races, some guaranteed pools in the pick four ending in the Haskell, $400,000, $200,000 guaranteed late pick five, the last five races of the card, and a $200,000 estimated win early pick five uh, purse as well. I say purse, you know what I mean, pool. Special early post of 12 p.m. on Saturday, Come check it out. Undefeated Jack Christopher expected to highlight the $1 million grade one TVG.com Haskell. To learn more, go to monmouthpark.com. Welcome to the In the Money Players Podcast. This is our show for Tuesday, July 19th. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornatal, back with you from the little house on the east side. Excited to have uh, two frequent guests of the show on. A little bit later, we're going to get to Pat Cummings of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, but we're going to kick things off with a man who's writing, you've been reading over at InTheMoneyPodcast.com. We've also been sending out his uh, daily analysis, Nick's Notebook, as I think we're calling it now. Um, it's going to eventually be on the plus side of things, but we did the free preview opening weekend. He, of course, is Nick Tamaroom. Nick, what's going on? I'm doing great, my friend. How are you? Life is good. Looking forward to this uh, trip to the Jersey Shore this weekend. Are you, you your, ba- your bag's packed? You ready to rock and roll? Ready to roll? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. This is my, uh, be my third Haskell, so I, I'm... I go, I guess, roughly every five to seven years, and uh, so I'm very, very much looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a, a good. Uh, you know, it'll be a compact field like it usually is. Haskell's not a, not never a big field. Usually they go for the marquee names, and it looks like that's kind of right. It looks like it's that kind of race. Yeah, I mean Jack Christopher, the biggest of names. Does it sound like Tape is going to be showing up as well? That's what I hear. Yeah, I'm here in field of six. Uh, Jack Christopher, Cyberknife, Taba. White Barrio, Benevengo, and Howling Time. Okay, that's that's not a bad little six pack. Uh, I'm especially excited, of course, to see how Jack Christopher gets on, and and let's see if Taba is the horse he looked like in his first two starts with his time away and a race that uh, Bob Baffert has won a time or two. It could be quite a showdown there down at the down at the Jersey Shore. Looking forward to it. We're gonna have tons of content later in the week. You and I will talk off air about how we want to do our Monmouth content this weekend but one thing i know i've got is a show we'll record on thursday with frank biramati brian skirka and jk looking at some of these stakes races maybe we can do something on the day in person that might be fun matt bernier and i will also be talking all about the the at least the big grade ones on horse player happy hour that week you can join us live via live stream in the money media um Actually, Breeders' Cup uh, social media is the easiest way to find that. Their, their YouTube channel, not ours for that one, but our social will also have it. should be a ton of fun. But let's pivot to talk about some personal news with you as you have punched your ticket 
for the next NHC with a, a nice performance down at Lone Star Park. Uh, I, I imagine you got to be thrilled. Yeah, very excited. Um, so that they were actually, the NTRA was actually going to let me carry over my 20, I don't even remember what year it was for. It was, it was, it was earned in 2021, but it was for the 2022 event. Um, and they were going to let me carry that over because uh, my dad passed away in January. And so I had one. Now I have two. So it's, okay. um, even yeah, better. So it's, it's even better. Exactly. Right. So it, it's, uh, it's, you know, that much more fun. So I am now officially a nine time qualifier. Um, yeah, they had, they went ahead and did the summer betting challenge at Lone Star, despite the issues going on right now with the racing commission and Lone Star not being opted into Haiza. And I thought I was a little nuts to play it. Um, and so funny story, I, I we were I was in Dallas with my wife and daughter and and so I was there for my day job earlier in the week hung around for the weekend had breakfast with them Saturday morning and then I was going to go to the track of course Lone Star is starting at 11 a.m. now so it's kind of an early you know early type of situation I was staying in Irving I was actually staying in the same hotel as Richard Baltus who I saw walking out of the coffee shop that morning did not speak to him about his current situation but um, so I I you know I needed to go to Wells Fargo because you I needed to buy my Contest entries in cash. Well, everybody in the Dallas Fort Worth area was at Wells Fargo, and <laughs> and so I I was able to get an ATM uh, to get cash out of the ATM that would cover one entry, but I really needed two entries, and so I I texted a friend who was there and I said, Hey, is there any way I can borrow a grand and I'll just sell you? And he was like, Yeah, no problem. So I got off the line. I went and and drove to Lone Star, borrowed the thousand. To buy the second, and he's like, "Oh, that was for a second entry." I said, "Yeah, it was for a second entry." So it, it, it reminded me a little bit of the the story that Toby Callett used to tell at Gulfstream, where Andy Byer one time said, "Toby, I need to borrow fifty dollars," and Toby was like, "Really? Okay." And so he handed him the fifty dollars, and Byer turned around and went to the window and said, "I need a thousand to win on the one," <laughs> but he needed the fifty to make it an even thousand. So, um, <laughs> so I, <laughs> so I, I, you know, I, I played the two entries well. Early on in the contest, it's like, well, what am I going to do? You know, these are the pools are small, and you want to be careful. Can't obviously make a big win bet, so I started making five hundred dollars show bets, and I hit the first two that I made. And then there was a horse that went off five to two that I ended up betting five hundred to win on that probably should have been somewhere around three to five. And I think it was just a situation where you know the public was a little misguided with uh, with how things were going. And so that, you know, got me into a good position. I was in fourth going into the last race and I went for the win, but the odds on the exacta of field pass over a mega city went down a little bit and I ended up finishing third and got an NHC spot and a little prize. And it was uh, all in a day's work. Beautiful stuff. How noticeable, and I imagine the answer is very, were the, did those smaller pools um, end up, being, and I mean this in terms of effect of your bets on the market, but also in terms of sharpness. I guess you kind of already answered this, but was that an anomaly in that one race, or was that something you were seeing throughout the day? The pools were uh, probably sharper than they've been since July first, but they were definitely not sharp. They were, yeah, there was it was a it was a good opportunity for anybody that you know that that really uh, could view it the right way, so to speak. Um, you know, for example, and, and the 
of course, Saratoga was going on, so not everybody was paying any attention. But the last race was the Texas Turf Classic, was the feature on the card. And um, Mega City, who was first off acclaimed for Mike Maker, actually wired the field and ended up getting disqualified, and his stablemate field pass was placed first. Mega City was 7-2, to two, which, was, which was a totally ridiculous price in that race. I mean, he should have been... They should have probably been six to five and eight to five or four to five, yeah. seven to five, something like that. I mean, they absolutely towered over the field on paper. And so the four to five over seven to two exact to pay three to one. And um, that might be a little bit low, you know, a little bit lower than it could have. But I mean, in my opinion, it was a three to five over six to five exacta, right? So yes. paying eight bucks was fine. And um, and so, you know, that, that was, I think, what, where it really worked out. I'll tell you, it's a shame that, they didn't export their signal because they did about 570,000 in on-track handle. So, I mean, it was a good size. They out-handled a number of racetracks that ran on Saturday. But, you know, they, they just did it with, uh, with the on-track business. That's really interesting, though. Though I don't think it's a, obviously a sustainable uh, business model going forward. It is not, no. And, and in fact, I mean, I'm not breaking any news in saying that if this is the situation in place and – and I have no, you know, I have no insider knowledge on it. I've not spoken with anyone there, but we won't open at Sam Houston if we can't export our signal. Oof. When is that? Uh, how much Jan- time do we have to get that? Jan- yeah, January. So, I mean, there's time. So hopefully, you know, things kind of happen. But um, I mean, yeah, again, with this is me with no knowledge of, of the situation whatsoever, no insider information, but I can't imagine how. I mean, because we're, Lone Star is sustainable without going down a rabbit hole on this, but Lone Star is sustainable for a short period of time because they do a tremendous on-track business. One of the differences is that, you know, they run on the weekend during the day in the summer. We run on the weekend at night in the winter. So, you know, it's it's a very big difference in terms of how many people you're going to get to your facility and um, and Houston sports fans, as much as I love my city, are as apathetic as they come. So they just are not <laughs> they are not going to get in their car and drive to the northwest side of town on a Saturday night if it's 50 degrees. So, right. just, you know, they're inside drinking hot chocolate by a fire. So, you know, <laughs> no, it's, you would you would die like you would die at, at, at how ridiculous it is. Like, we get complaints about how cold it is when it's 45. And God forbid the wind start blowing. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, and, and Sam Houston in general, you know, we're doing two million a night, two million a card. You know that's that's fifty sixty thousand dollars of lost operating expenses if you're not exporting your signal. That's impossible to overcome. Uh, well, this is a story we'll be following with great interest for a tremendous variety of reasons, Nick. But uh, glad you were able to get that second NHC entry. And I wish I could say I'd be seeing you out there, but this reschedule um, is going to be tough for me, I think with, uh, that being the weekend before Cheltenham, but we'll see, you, you never know what's going to happen. We'll see how things, uh, we'll see how things shake out, but you're really here today. Cause I wanted to recap some of the stakes action and talk about some of the general trends from Saratoga opening weekend, classic example of one of these conversations that I want to have anyway, and we'll just record it. Um, what are your observations about generally speaking how the track was playing over the first several days of the week? I meet I did hear some chirping about uh, speed favoring. There were some results that suggested that and and some that did not. How would you say that the track played through the first few days of the week? Um I thought it played consistently with regards to uh the normal Saratoga surface. Um I, that's kind of a, a a diplomatic answer, a political answer, it almost sounds like. But, you know, it, we talked a little bit on uh, the podcast that you and I did for the carryover on Friday. And, 
you know, there's been a bit of a notion, and, and I know David Aragona has been saying this for a while, and I have tremendous respect for David's opinion about kickback. And, and, and I guess the thought is that the kickback is bad, and it, it almost plays out similarly to Aqueduct in terms of how the kickback affects horses that are really taking the brunt of it. That's just a little esoteric for me. I, I don't, you know, I, there's kickback on every dirt surface. Right. So I just don't know. I respect his opinion. I understand that maybe that's a thought for why um, things aren't going as well, maybe for some of the off the pace horses. I think that the reason why people would reach that conclusion based on Saturday's results is that reinvestment risk and Forte both ran very poorly coming from off the pace. And these were horses that were very well fancied at the windows. And so I think, you know, the easiest thing to do is say, well, there had to be some kind of bias because, I mean, those horses just, you know, on paper, they looked so good. And they both underperformed. So, you know, I don't think there's been anything remarkable. I don't think there's been a particularly good rail. I don't think there's been a particularly dead rail. It feels like you're probably better off being a path off the inside. That is generally true at every Naira racetrack. So I don't think there's any maintenance going on at Saratoga that's different than Aqueduct or Belmont. So I think those, I think that's generally been the case. The the inner turf course seems to be very hard on speed. Um, the, the majority of the winners came from well off the pace, especially Saturday and Sunday, um, even a good, good amount of it on Friday. So I don't think there's, there's anything um, to glean from that really, other than maybe you could upgrade some of the speed horses that looked like they, they kind of hit the wall. The melon is very firm, and I know you guys took a good amount of rain yesterday, or at least I'm hoping it was yes. a good amount of rain. So, yeah, I think that'll that'll even things out because you're also supposed to get some really hot temperatures over the next few days, and those courses will get really firm really fast. So, and and they're not fun when they're really firm. They're just the inner becomes a paved highway, and and it gets really frustrating. The other thing is that you know the the turf courses are in use a lot. And the more days you run on them where they're super firm, by the end of the meet, you're really dealing with a, you know, a tremendously biased surface. So, yeah, that's kind of my roundabout answer. I don't think there's been anything terribly surprising in terms of, of track profile or, uh, or bias. Sounds pretty typical, right? More, more like the universal bias of, of dirt racing as far as that goes. Interesting note about, uh, about the inner and, and the outer maybe having slightly different um, profiles to this point, but nothing actionable yet, I, I think, is, is what you're saying. Yeah, no, definitely not. I mean, I, I think what we're, what we're all looking forward to um, is the first week the rails are down on the inner because the rails being down on the inner year in and year out has just been – the inside has been unbelievably strong and the riders that don't adapt to it, their horses become backs. And I mean, we saw winners coming back off wide trips on the inner turf last year at 30 to one, 15 to one. Um, I'm wow for Mark Hennig is one that sticks out for me, came back and, and broke her maiden next time out in October at I think 34 to one. And she had been wide on both <laughs> turns. So yeah, there's a lot of there. That really is going to be the first sort of turf opportunity. And you know, until we see a gold rail on the main track, which very, very rarely happens, I don't know how much actionable we'll see on there either. You can follow along with Nick's daily thoughts. I mean, imagine bias is one of the things you'll be touching on in the notebook. You can sign up for that in the moneypodcast.com slash plus. You get a lot of other stuff as well, but I'm going to wager that uh, the, the 15 bucks you'd pay for the for the next month. Um, you get value out of that just in reading Nick's daily analysis. You can hear his institutional knowledge of the place. Let's look back at some stakes races starting on Thursday. And 
the first one that we'll talk about was the Wilton Stakes. And this one, this is an absurd question to ask you after there have been two races run out of the Wilson shoot. But uh, how's it going so far? What did you think of Tarabi's win with the 86 buyer in there? What are you expecting, if anything, from the Wilson shoot going forward? Or is it just still totally a we know nothing yet, wait and see? Um, a little bit of that, but I do think it, it certainly played out as if it's a, a pretty fair type of setup. Uh, I, I think I was concerned about, well, I mean, I wasn't concerned, but I was obviously thinking about how things might go for outside drawn runners because you don't want to see them go to a, you know, a huge disadvantage right out of the gate. But um, I think it, I think it is laid out very well and uh, it seemed like it played perfectly fair on opening day and on Saturday. Um, I think my biggest complaint with it is I don't love the head on camera angle coming out of the gate. So I just, it gives you no perspective, but the problem is I don't think they have a pan camera that will capture the start. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it looks like the way it was designed and the way they're putting horses, you know, from the, basically the four post outward is so that the outside runners don't lose terribly much ground coming out of the gate, which seems fine. The first time this is going to be interesting is when a two-year-old turf race gets taken off and they put it at that mile. So, cause my understanding is that that's what they're going to do. And um, that will yes. be a little, that will be a little interesting. It'll, it'll be interesting to see, first of all, how they corner and, you know, how much the outside horses end up being affected. But um, otherwise, yeah, I mean, it looks like it's, it's playing, playing pretty well to Robbie was uh, expected to win and she did it in, in work, work woman like fashion, I should say um, for Cherie DeVoe, who gets uh, her first Saratoga stake win. And Tarabi looks like a filly with some upside. You know, she's probably a little slow compared to the best of her generation. But, and I also don't know exactly where she fits distance-wise. I've kind of probably feel like a, a one-turn, one-and-a-half-turn mile is probably her best trip. But uh, it was a very good ride. It was a very heady ride by Javier Castellano, who also had a really good opening day. I mean, he won three races, and, and his ride on Tarabi was just, it was great. He was very quiet on her, and he waited to ask her for her best run, and she produced it. It'll be interesting as the, the one-mile shoot races go on to see how many runners they eventually let go in them, if they're going to limit it to eight or or have it be 10. But I do think that part of what's going on is, as you alluded to, trying to avoid that weird situation of the mile and a 16th turf races either going out to a mile and an eighth for elders or cutting back to the seven for two-year-olds. I think those races will probably hold together better if there's a reliable one-mile dirt option. Yeah, I would agree. And some of those, you know, the New York Red Maidens that go to a mile and an eighth on the, the main track, and, and we're generally giving an over-under of minute 55 or so, uh, they're, they're better suited to the mile, I would say. And, um, and so I would think that, that some of those, I, I guess, is that the case too, is that the, the mile and the 16th for the olders are also going to go to the mile? Makes I sense. do believe so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 rather than stretch them out to cut them, to cut them back that 16th, I think was what I had heard was going to be the plan. So, you know, work in progress. We'll talk about how it plays out. I mean, I take your point about the outside horses losing ground. I could also see if they had too many runners in that gate about the inside runners getting squeezed, trying to make the angle. So, you know, it's, it's, it'll be, it's, I'm cautiously optimistic that it's going to end up being a good thing. Let's move on to the Schuylerville, the opening day feature where uh, just Cindy got the job done. 
not a speed figure that that's going to uh, get speed figure nerds overly excited coming back at, at just the 73. But did you see anything in here that you thought was notable or you'll, you'll carry forward with you? Yeah, just a filly that's probably a little more advanced than her, uh, the rest of her generation. Um, good thing about just Cindy is she's rated very comfortably in both of her two starts now. Did not take a step forward, obviously, it, it, in terms of speed figure. I do wonder, with this race being a little isolated in terms of the time of day, if it might be a race that you should break out figure-wise. But um, she was, look, I mean, she sat comfortably behind the lead, and when she angled out, she produced a, a very solid late run for, for Irad Ortiz. And, you know, over the years, we've seen Eddie Keneally win some of these early two-year-old races. He's won the Sanford in the last six years or so twice, and those horses have both gone on to be claimers. So, you know, you wonder if just Cindy might suffer the same fate, being that it looks like she's a little bit better than her competition right now, but she's also really not that good. So that would be the the concern. Um, I think Dwayne Lucas's horse, Summer Princess, did a little bit more of the heavy lifting, spying the speed and, and making the first move. But And she fought on a little bit in the stretch, but really had no excuse when, when push came to shove. Like most years, Pete, I think that these fillies are not going to strike any fear into the ones that are ultimately destined to go to the spinaway. Um, we just need to see some two-year-old racing. And, and they're obviously having a hard time getting the open company races filled. And I've been very surprised through the first five or six days at Colonial seeing how many open maiden races they've had. And, and there have been Pletcher horses and Asmussen. And, you know, those guys are, are maybe they're looking for spots for what they think are lesser horses. But, you know, generally by now we've seen a couple of open company two-year-old races. And uh, to this point, we've seen one. Yeah, it's surprising. And as a guy who's, you know, doing this baby talk show where I'm meant to be having special shows about these, I've noticed it very acutely. If you took a guess as to what was going on, what, what would the answer be? I think there's just very little incentive for a lot of them to get started this early. And and I think timing wise, it works out really well to be um, to, to debut around end of July um, to work your way into the hopeful or spin away. And so I think they're probably just developing them a little more slowly. I think one of the other problems is that the Kentucky guys all had their horses ready to, to go at Churchill because the purses are enormous and those races seem to fill without any issue at all. And there's just really not, and it's not because the racing office doesn't try. There's just really no two-year-old program in New York. You know, it was this Skyler's bill. I, I tweeted on, on Wednesday about how there were no horses in the race that had started in New York. And then on, on Saturday in the Sanford, which I'm sure we're going to talk about that in a couple of minutes, I think there were three horses that had run in New York. So, you know, that's a really small number, and it's hard to build a program when your participation level is so low. What I'm hearing is it's modern training methods and just scoping it out. Maiden, big grade one, maybe one prep Breeders' Cup. Like you, you, you sort of build back from the Breeders' Cup when you think about your best two-year-olds and the, the early part of the Saratoga meet maybe ends up being like a bit of an outlier because you don't want to have seven weeks between the maiden and then the, the, the first grade one. And, and you don't want to have three or four weeks either. <laughs> so, or, or if you do, you don't necessarily need another start. I, I think I'm, I think you've hit on to something and I think it all ties into just the way modern thoroughbreds are trained. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with uh, certain trainers as well. Um, and, and look, a guy like Asmussen, if he has a horse ready, he's going to run them. But if he doesn't, then it's going to be noticeable that, that races are not 
as robust. Maybe the fields aren't as full. Maybe they're not happening as frequently. So that's the, um, yeah, that's the situation. Let's talk about Friday. We'll move on to a horse that you give a very nice shout out to on the podcast that we did in the Coronation Cup. Empress Tiger, excuse me, Empress Tigress for my old Saratoga roommate, Jonathan Thomas, um, built on that nice debut win. Scores 110 on the time form scale for this one and uh, looked pretty good in doing so and paid a, what I thought was a pretty pleasing price at 920. Were you able to back up your, your opinion with a winning wager in this one? Yeah, that, this was a good one. And Jonathan Thomas really worked everything out perfectly because uh, I think I mentioned on that podcast, I also mentioned to Steve Bick that he had cross-entered both Empress Tigers and Ben Bang in the uh, Blue Sparkler down at Monmouth. And he ended up winning this race with Empress Tigers and he won the Blue Sparkler with Ben Bang. So it worked out ideally. Um, she, you knew she was ready to roll when she broke as quickly as she did. And she showed a, a pretty significant amount of early speed. What I would say is that in watching this race back, isolate on the far turn where she is and where the horses who end up running really where the horse who ends up running second is and everybody else. And she just, she survived what ended up playing out as a pretty wicked pace. So this was a really, really strong performance. I mean, when she was asked to go by Johnny V at the eighth pole, she accelerated very quickly and, um, and, and, and held on and Poppy flower was coming at her late. It always looked like she was going to be able to hold her safe. Darian ended up making a good run for third. But uh, it was a, that was a really strong effort, and I think as evidenced by the 110 time from U.S. figure. I also thought the betting was a little odd here, and, and I actually tweeted beforehand about how much money Derry Nane was taking. She ended up going off at 3-1. to one. Static Fire ended up going off at 9-5. to five. I, I did not understand why Static Fire would be favored in here. You and I touched on it a little bit in the podcast about how hard it was going to be for her to go wire to wire. That was when we were assuming that Twilight Gleaming was going to be in the field. But even without Twilight Gleaming, there was still plenty of speed. She didn't get a sniff of the lead, and she was sort of a, a non-threatening fourth. I ended up sort of lucking on to Empress Tigress with the scratch of Twilight Gleaming. Derrynane was just shorter than I wanted to take for a horse that had questions. My interest in Derrynane, you know, I think I proposed going two A's, six and 11 on the show. And my interest in Derrynane was very much tied to the fact that I thought she could get maybe lost or forgotten without Twilight Gleaming. Um, that just was not, not the case. And yeah, again, that seven to two played out very well. The buyer figure in lockstep with Timeform US that came back at a 90 in the coronation. We had um, more stakes racing on Friday. And this is a race I spoke about with Spencer Lugenbuehl this week on Redboard Rewind, the Forbidden Apple, as one one of those races where after the fact, I just wanted to bang my head against the wall because I feel like this was a, a logical long shot I should have had that I just whiffed on. City Man scored at 12 to 1 in this one, comes back. 125 on Timeform US and the buyer figure was 103, a little bit lower relatively to the Timeform, but certainly in the ballpark. Um, what did you think about City Man? You know, I, I feel similarly because obviously I'm I'm very familiar with City Man and, and I just didn't think he was good enough. I did not think he was good enough to beat this caliber of field. And 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 I know that he had a particularly difficult trip in, in the, the prior race, which I, I want to call the Mohawk, but it wasn't the Mohawk. It was the New York Red Older Turf race on Memorial Day. And um, where he, he went to the lead and then his rider sort of deferred and let everybody run by him. And he ended up getting to a bunch of traffic. He kind of got his face torn off. So anyway, he had a tough trip in that race. I just, the, the open company races he had run when he had run well, they were generally at Aqueduct. They were usually against a weaker group of horses. And I thought this was a pretty damn good field. 
you know, I thought this was a grade more more on the grade two side of grade three. And as it played out, he got a very heady ride. He saved a ton of ground. And when it was time to go, he really produced a very, very strong run. With that said, uh, public sector was is obviously has not moved forward as a four-year-old. I mean, he, he may be running faster speed figures, but he clearly was beating up on inferior horses last year. And he is just not a better four-year-old than he was a three-year-old. Um, and set piece and mirror mission both got embarrassingly bad rides. This was not this was not the French's finest hour in the riding colony. Um, <laughs> th- this was, and 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 probably I'm probably being overly hard on Julian um, because mirror mission really didn't have much run. But mirror mission was never winning this race from well off the pace. You know, taking him completely out of his game and trying to to linger behind and make one run. I mean, he was behind City Man in public sector. There was no way handicapping that race. You were believing that Mirror Mission was going to be behind those two. And he wasn't – it wasn't like they were a neck in front of him. They were lengths in front of him. So that was just really foolish. And, you know, Florent had the rail, and so he took that piece back, which was expected. But then he tried to do the whole, you know, I'm going to weave my way between horses. And shockingly, that didn't work out. You're talking about a long, striding, one-run horse. you got to get outside. Right. I mean, you got to get you got to be able to make a run on the outside. And um, and he never really had much of an opportunity to do that. Depending on how tough the four star day field is, I wouldn't necessarily discount set piece as a as a bit player, uh, because the other thing I would say is that if Brad Cox runs him back, it's a good sign. And I don't think he got a particularly fair shake in this race. And I do think his race at Pimlico was was one of his better races actually in his entire career. And one of his best races of his entire career was in last year's four star day because he made a big wide late move down that turf course where the inside was the place to be. So if we see him come back, then, um, then I think he's a horse worth taking a little bit of a look at. Christoph Clement now has the opportunity to decide between the, uh, the uh, four star Dave and the, I think it's the West point. Yeah. The West point is the, uh, yep. the New York bred older turf race at Saratoga. Um, I actually don't know when it is. I, I think it's the day before the Travers. So and anyway. Usually they have a New York bread day. It's Yeah, I feel like it's either that. Yeah, I think it's that Friday now in the new, yeah. in, in the rejiggered calendar. The New York bread race you were thinking of before, by the way, I think was the Kingston. Does that sound Kingston, right? Kingston, so, exactly Man. right. Yeah, King, King, Kingston, Ashley, T. Cole, Mohawk. And uh, I think those are the extent of them for, for the year. And, and West Point. So yeah, we'll see what he ends up doing with City Man. The, the New York bread ranks are right for the picking, but uh, this is a horse who clearly is worthy of, I mean, if he's getting 103 fakes, he's supposed to be in the four-star days. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see him. I'd like to see him be be up to the challenge. I think you make good points about uh, about the rides on the bigger on the bigger favorites in there. It was just one of those ones where at that price, based on the run three back and the excuses, the last two between the, the, the ride and then the boggy turf, I just felt like as a figure-oriented player, he wasn't that hard to come up with at that price as some sort of alternative. I just whiffed. It happens. <laughs> Let's talk about Saturday. Um, we'll go to the Sanford, two-year-old's uh, center stage once again. Most strike getting the job done. You alluded to uh, Forte being a test case for some of those who thought it was very hard to close on the day. What do you think of most strike coming out of this? Any others you're interested in either um, keeping on side or taking on as we go forward? Yeah, you know, most strike was a horse that I liked, and I kind of got to him by looking at the field that he beat in his debut. And Brad Cox has, and, and I brought this up multiple different places, has an inordinately good record with two-year-old second-time starters coming off of wins. And it's just obvious that Brad 
who is a student of the game and who is as sharp as they come. Um, he spots his horse as well off of maiden wins. And so Mo Strike was a good example of that. He had already, there already was a run back from, uh, a winner run back from his debut. Whereas, you know, if you looked at Forte's form, the horses that he beat on, in his debut were very bad. And they're all going to be claimers. And so you had to at least consider that as part of the situation. Mo Strike looks like a horse that will be, what fig did he get? 80? He got an 85. 85. So he'll be in the hopeful, and, and rightfully so. As far as everybody else, you know, I picked Great Navigator. I think Great Navigator ran really well. I have no qualms with having picked him. Um, I thought maybe he was a little disadvantaged by being inside for longer than he needed to be. Once he got outside, he did produce a late run. He got second because Jose Ortiz stopped riding on the Amoa Forense, and I'm appreciative. So um, (laughs) it was a good result. So, yeah, you know, he's a horse that being with Jersey-based connections, you know, maybe he ends up running in in a softer spot at Monmouth. But I thought he backed up his debut very nicely. I think he took a a pretty clear step forward. Not really many other horses did any running. You know, Forte, Forte put in what looked like a late run, but he was also running as everybody else was becoming exhausted. And, you know, one of the themes of opening week is that, and, and I, I don't, you know, I don't want to beat up on him because he's the best rider in the country, but I, I rather tease needs to understand that not every horse he's on is going to win. And he seems to ride a lot of his horses like they're all going to have an endless supply of run. And so, but, but he didn't really, he didn't do anything wrong with Forte. He put Forte in a mid-pack position. He asked him to run around the turn, and it just took him a really long time to get going. So I don't know if maybe – I don't know if maybe he needs blinkers to sharpen him up a little bit. I don't know if maybe he's going to get better with a little bit more ground because around the eighth pole, I mean, he's just sort of galloping, and that's when Great Navigator is, is switched outside. And then it's almost like Irad gets down on him a little bit, and he starts running again. But I think he's also just picking off tired horses. So I don't know exactly what to make of Forte. I, I think it'll be pretty telling if Todd brings him back in the hopeful because it would mean to me that Todd feels pretty good about what might still be in reserve. But look, it, it, and he galloped out great, but it, it would be it's undeniable to say that it was a disappointing effort. Interesting notes from Timeform US on this one. For one thing, have the race much uh, slower, uh, a 96 on their – non-adjusted final fig, which is more like the 70, 76 buyer than the 85 buyer that we that, that was given, was also downgraded significantly in terms of their performance rating to a 92 because it was coded blue throughout. And then just another note on, on the track that I thought was interesting, this day actually earned their algorithmic bias color coding as one favoring closers slightly. I just thought those were interesting notes to pass on because I didn't, I hadn't realized that until just this moment. Any of that surprise you? Um, the, well, I do know there was a timing issue with this race. So what I, what I can be certain of is that Craig probably spent an ungodly amount of time getting the time right, <laughs> um, knowing Craig. And so um, that, you know, that part will, I, I believe I, I trust in time for my trust. So I'm, I believe that part of it. I don't know about the closer designation. That might have to do more with um, something, as you said, algorithmic about where horses were in terms of their running lines and where they finished. But look, I mean, it played out like a slow pace race, right? I mean, nobody made a, nobody made a meaningful off the pace move, maybe save Forte. 
great navigator came from a little bit off the pace, but he was also closer than Forte. So yeah, I mean, if you believe that, then you're going to want to, you're going to want to upgrade um, great navigator a little bit. You, you want to upgrade Forte a little bit in their, their respective next outings. But um, this is another race where it's hardly going to surprise if somebody comes along that is a little bit better, you know, we could see one of those hot two-year-old firsters come up and, you know, and earn a, a, 90 85 to 90 buyer speed figure and they'd probably go into the hopeful with uh, just as much fanfare and expectation as anybody from this race the racingflow.com data not available yet maybe i'll send out a tweet about that just to see how that compares to that note from the the time form algorithm let's talk about the grade one diana i think many of us thought that uh in italian was in here as a as a pace setter as it were maybe maybe she even was but she set that pace and she just kept on going and she did it in a fast time coming back uh, with a 127 time form U.S. adjusted race rating. Um, it, it, the raw figure was 121. So, yeah, in Italian gets the job done. How surprised were you by this result? And, uh, and, and just give me your thoughts on the Diana. You know, it's funny, Pete, and you there was a T-shirt that they handed out years ago at the NHC and it said something to the effect of the game where you can be genius or idiot. And, and so, you know, Saturday afternoon, I finished third in the contest at Lone Star. I'm playing the weekly contest for on bets and I'm in uh, first at this point in time. And so, you know, I'm doing good and, and I'm really excited. And, and I had talked about this race at length with you and with Steve Vick and with everybody else because it's Saratoga and everybody wants to talk about Saratoga. And they ran around the track and I thought, you are such a moron, right? You're so <laughs> dumb that you completely discounted this horse and felt like she was, you know, nothing but a rabbit. And she ended up stuffing you in a locker, as you like to say. <laughs> and, you know, unfortunately, I will admit, I did not lose any significant amount of money. I used her in the pick six as a backup. Um, my pick six ended up dying in the last race. But um, for five, I was not alive for six. So, you know, it wasn't as if it was a particularly costly result. It was just that I didn't even take her seriously. You know, I just felt like this is sort of a joke. You know, she's a she's a rabbit and she's going to go to the lead and she's going to set the pace. And then she's just going to capitulate and technical analysis will either win or she'll be run down by one of her two stable mates. And, you know, here was an Italian who really had earned her stripes winning races where she had set nothing paces and just stayed on. But now all of a sudden in the just a game, she was a Philly that got involved in a really hot pace and stayed on well. And now on Saturday, she got involved in a really, really hot pace and stayed on well. So it was, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm still a little baffled at how well she ran. Um, I think it's a combination of being surprised at how well she ran and how poorly Bleecker Street and Rougier ran. I mean, Rougier's, Rougier's done to me. I don't know. This stuff about her needing firm, less than firm turf, I think is nonsense. I think she's, I think she's cooked. But, um, but Bleecker Street was, you know, was really not herself. And with, when all of those things happen at the same time, you can get a result like this because an Italian is a Philly who's clearly gotten a lot better. And, um, and you know, taking that aggressive front-running approach can make you very hard to beat when you're running everybody else off their feet. And that's exactly what she did. Yeah, it, it really was a, an impressive display of speed throughout and something that, you know, makes you wonder if it, it'll make um, 
Chad Brown, not that he's unwilling to send tour forces to the lead. I mean, Tribuven, there, there are examples, but some of these ones that might appear like lesser lights when compared to their incredibly impressive um, stablemates, maybe it's an interesting option. Before we move on, let's just pause on Rougier for a second, because these last two races, kind of too bad to be believed. Given the incredible success that this particular team has had buying horses at sales and bringing them over, they seem to have some real knack for knowing which horses are going to adjust well to the USA ground. Is it possible they just got it wrong with Rougier, or do we think there's something else going on here? She did run well in with, with cut in the ground, better than well, awesome, in that uh, debut run in the States. Yeah, you know... It's a tough read for me, Pete, because she obviously earned uh, a number of accolades and some big wins last year for a trainer who, you know, now every one of those performances sort of comes under scrutiny because of what went on with Cedric Rossi's yard at the end of the year. And and she's been she's been remarkably bad in, in two straight races where she was expected to run well. She was reportedly training very well, presumably over firm turf. But, you know, when they put the saddle on in the afternoon, it's just not it's not happening. So I'm concerned. And, and I think that this might have been one where the connections not I don't want to say they outsmarted themselves, but I think they they paid a lot of money for this Philly. I, I think they paid three, three point something million, um, obviously, with an I, eye on, on breeding her. Yeah, breeding her down the line. But um, the other problem with a with a Euro Philly that needs softer ground is that we don't really run on softer ground you know the only place she's getting softer ground is if she goes to a race like the you know the first lady at keeneland um and and they get some rain that keeneland's about the only place that they run i mean they'll run in new york obviously on softer ground but it's just not going to happen anywhere else so and and maybe the argument is hey by the time we get to the breeders cup you know they'll, they'll be the ground will be a little softer and she'll be set for you know for an improved effort I think with Chad Brown, one of the things we've known is that when he has had older turf females looking like they're off form or or out of it, if he pursues things, if he really continues on with them, it's a great sign of confidence. And the horse that comes to mind is Stephanie's kitten, who in 2014, everybody basically just completely wrote off. And then she just kept on running and kept getting better and better and better and ultimately finished a really good second in the Breeders' Cup and the following year ended up winning the Breeders' Cup. So um, I think if we see Chad per- continue to pursue these big objectives with Rougier, it's probably a good sign. But, you know, the whispers about her maybe having maybe being a little long in the tooth now become roars. Yeah, well, I think that's completely fair. And I think you bring up about the Rossi barn and the DQs for uh, various uh, medication violations. It, it's it's not too hard to put together a, a theory that leads to something negative. But I think in this case, you say in Chad Brown, we trust and, and you figure depending on how she's handled from here. I, I'm not willing to completely give up, but it sure feels like um, unless the price is very big, it, it might be paying to take a cynical view at this point. Let's talk about Sunday's graded stakes race, the quick call on the uh, the for the turf sprinters here over at uh, at Saratoga. Big Invasion has just been so so good and continued that with this uh, fairly dominating uh, performance that earned a 100 buyer speed figure. Is this horse a serious? I mean, how obviously this horse is a serious player in the division, but how good is this horse at this point? How much respect do you have for him? Oh, he's really good. Yeah, he's gotten good quickly, and he stayed good. Um, you know, the the 
what he did on Sunday that was probably a, a particularly good sign as far as moving forward is he's a little bit closer early. And, you know, that, that'll help him, I think, in the long run quite a bit. The, the surprising thing about this race was that the decision, I guess, was made by his rider coming out of the gate that uh, the horse that I will refer to as Nobles was not going to go to the lead. And, um, and he rated, he rated up sitting off in third. He might not be a turf horse. He might be more of just a, a synthetic wonderkind. And so he ended up kind of stopping and, and showing very little. The other thing that you have to, you know, you have to talk about here is that why the hell did Wesley Ward ride Jamie Spencer? I mean, well, you know, you, you have a horse that showed a tremendous amount of speed last time, ran off with Irad Ortiz and you put Jamie Spencer on who, you know, is just going to drag him back and, and let him try and make one run from off the pace. And he was just completely ineffective. He had no, he had no punch late because he's a speed horse. So, uh, you know, whatever, uh, maybe, maybe Wesley owed Jamie one, but that was, uh, that was pretty, pretty baffling. And as it ended up, I don't think any really different set of circumstances would have led to a different result. Big Invasion was always winning. And now he finds himself in a division where, you know, ultimately he's probably going to get an opportunity against older horses because he's, He's deserving of it. And, you know, aside from the likes of Golden Pal, I don't really know who out there in among the older horses that are turf sprinters should really strike a, a ton of fear into him. I said on TV, I actually got, I picked Nobles and I pronounced it that way as well. And I explained that I did that because I didn't want to have to explain the joke about uh, the gelding called the, uh, you know, no balls. I figured that would be, you know, maybe bad for, for her, uh, her opinion of me. So we left that one. We, we called them nobles and he, and it was a just, that was baffling is the asymmetric being held up and having, you know, them fighting the last war too much and not wanting to go too fast and then being too far back. I saw that one clear as day. I just thought it would maybe lead to a runner like nobles who just, I don't know, maybe the way he ran, you could say, that forget the tactics he just just wasn't uh didn't class up against that field whatever but i think you make the key point in that it's very hard to watch that race and see anyone beating big invasion and and yeah i mean we'll see what we'll see what happens with golden pal i mean certainly had a certainly had an excuse the the at ascot and and could easily bounce back and the figures that he's run order of magnitude still better than what big invasion runs but if something's gone wrong with him I mean, of anybody else, hard to look too far against this horse, just putting together a string of wins and, and doing it very impressively on the eye as well. Yeah, agreed. I, I think I, I'm on board with all of that. In fact, there was a very funny moment on Talking Horses on Sunday when Andy made a comment about the Jockey Club allowing this Nobles to, to get his name, of no, no Balls. And so he said, but, you know, you never know. There was a horse that ran a few years ago named Gas Station Sushi. And so Anthony said, but, you know, there really are gas stations that sell sushi. And so Andy looked at Anthony and said, Anthony, we are not having this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Which, and anybody uh, lost uh, on this one, go, we'll just go refer to Urban, you to Urban. Go to Urban I will admit that. So t- 10 years ago or so, I was, I was teaching journalism at a high school, the high school that I went to here in Houston. And, and I looked at Urban Dictionary so much. It might as well have been bookmarked because these kids would say things. And I was like, what the hell are they talking about? So (laughs) I learned all of these ridiculous things that I never needed to know. So then when Gas Station Sushi was winning at Keeneland and, you know, you hear like at prim and proper Keeneland with 
you know, just everything, racing as it's meant to be. And hear Kurt Becker uttering gas station sushi. And I went to Urban Dictionary to look it up and was, I mean, I laughed and laughed and laughed and was like, holy cow, how did they let this name get in there? But uh, guessing whoever approves names at the uh, at the Jockey Club had not made a pass at Urban Dictionary and looked up uh, gas station sushi. They might want to book some who's ever job that is may want to bookmark it. I mean, it, it, it could lead to some fairly anodyne names getting turned down. But I think in the, in the big picture of life, given their particular job, it might make sense. Since you mentioned Andy Serling, let's just very quickly touch on. I haven't read the whole thing because uh, one of the parties involved, I, I have I've muted and don't really have much interest in anything he has to say. But I, I guess there's been quite a, a Twitter spat from from what I was reading from Andy um, I, I feel like I'm team Andy on this one. What, have you been following the story? What can you tell the, the folks who may have been blissfully unaware of this particular bit of Twitter beef about this? Yeah, there's this, this has been going around now for about a year and a half. And I don't know how much he was doing it before I first noticed it, but I noticed on Houston ladies classic day in 2021, I they asked me to put up a pick five for both the early and late pick fives at Sam Houston. And I put out a ticket and, and this particular character um, on Twitter um, inside the pylons for anybody who's not familiar, um, basically critiqued my ticket. And so I encouraged him to put his up. And he told me that if somebody wanted to pay him to do it, then he would. <laughs> and I told him that, at that point in time, he and I were getting paid the same amount to put up pick five tickets because <laughs> I was not being compensated. So, you know, that that it, it, it ultimately went nowhere. But it, it generally so. And I'm only saying that not because I'm trying to insert myself into the conversation. That was the first time I noticed it. Well, apparently, on a pretty regular basis since then, what he is trying to do is build a following of people that buy into a multi-race ticket strategy and philosophy that basically centers on Never using the favorite, never using the favorite if you have a negative opinion of them under any circumstance as a backup defensively, never, ever, 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 ever narrowing your tickets down to as few horses as possible so that you can create as much EV in the sequence and understand that you are going to cash a very, very, very small percentage of the time. But when you do, you're going to cash for more than you would if you were playing on a regular basis. So it's the idea that, you know, I would rather have a, a $3,000 pick five, five times than consistently hit, you know, 500 to $1,000 pick fives and just kind of keep my churn going. I think the sentiment that players learning that long-term ROI is important is very valid. And I think it's, it's a conversation that generally doesn't happen very much also because I mean, and I'm not really scoffing at any of them, but most of the people that are on television talking about handicapping and betting couldn't survive betting. So, I mean, they can't have that conversation. Andy is somebody who did survive betting. Andy was a professional player for multiple years. So it's a completely different perspective that he's coming from. What, what these people like to do is take every little word that Andy says and, and sometimes distort them or misrepresent them. And, you know, I've seen some of them say, Andy says you should never single. That's ridiculous. Um, and I mean, in my experience and in discussing things regarding racing and betting, Andy is a very, uh, uh, what should I say, very efficient player in terms of how he structures a lot of doubles and pick threes and things like that. What he was was putting forth was that, you know, this idea that if you like, if you like three horses that are going to be fair prices in your pick four, 
and you're going to go narrow and use all of them. And then in the fourth leg, you like a four to one shot, but you think there's a chance the eight to five favorite can win. If you don't use the eight to five favorite, you're being silly. Because if your opinion on the first three races came in and you don't end up hitting the pick four, then that's dumb. Right. I mean, you're not going to make any money long term if you're if you're squandering those opinions like that. So, you know, I think what Andy would argue is that if you can take those opinions and narrow them down to maybe a shorter serial wager, that's where you're going to get the most value. So maybe you only play a double, maybe you only play a pick three, something like that. It's all situational. And it's so funny because both of these seemingly contradictory ideas came up on the the big better show we did with Sean and J.K., where, where Sean Borman, who's made his, I don't think he's ever made his living at anything but playing horses, talked about both these things. I mean, he did speak favorably about the idea that in these modern, very difficult um, paramutual markets, as they've evolved more and more, he is more geared towards that fewer combinations, hit them for more, have a lower strike rate, make sure you get paid. That's He's evolved into more of that kind of player. But at the same time, he would completely agree with, with the idea that you're nuts not to have certain sensible backups depending on the sequence. So it, it's, it's a complicated and interesting conversation. And I'm actually glad we we're, we're reiterating it here. Cause I think it, a lot of it also, it's as simple as it depends on what your goals are. You know, I don't think, I think it's a single digit number of players, horse players overall, and when I say single digit, I mean, boy, it's probably less than 5% who are only playing horses to produce an ROI. I think most of the people within the sound of my voice right now play the horses to have fun. And, you know, that's something that, yeah, maybe you're paying for that. Maybe somebody in that less than 5%, you know, I mean, it's, it's essentially getting very much into the category of what I'll, what I'll call, what I've called on the show before the EV police, you know, if, if, Maybe they'll look down on the other 95 to 97 percent of us who are going to have a, a, a good time and have a obviously we want to win more because that lets us have more fun. But, you know, it, it ain't it ain't the it ain't the end all be all. And I can also argue that it's completely within the realm of having a positive long term profit to include backups. The idea that you should. I'm, I, again, I didn't read through it, but if what's being said is that there's no sort that you shouldn't uh, have have backups at all, I mean that's that's pretty absurd. Yeah, oh, it's it's totally absurd. I mean, you know, I don't I don't know why anybody would make a strong case against that. I, I think Steve Chris laid it out really well in Exotic Betting and gave us all a pretty good sense of what how you mix them up. And, you know, if you turn it into an exercise of judiciously determining who's an A, who's a B, and who's a C, that's going to be challenging in and of itself, right? So, I mean, you're going to have a hard time doing that. You're going to have some times where, you know, you make some some less than perfect decisions, but they end up working out okay. And, you know, I would say to to anybody, and what you said is important as well, which is that the majority of people are playing for um, for the thrill of the game, right? They're not playing to... to to feed themselves or their families. And so if you're telling people that, you know, they might go months and months without hitting a, a, a pick five because they're basically playing essentially, you know, some kind of one by two by one by two by one sequence, then it's going to be hard mentally, right? It's going to be hard to do that. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be very difficult to sort of live off the fat of the land, so to speak, when you finally hit one, 
because you're going to have a long time between drinks of water. Now, I'm not saying that people should be encouraged to to cash bets where they have a, a low ROI just so that they you know they can churn more, not unless they're playing into some very lucrative rebate. But at the same time, I think there's somewhere. The other thing is exactly what you were saying that Sean said, which is that you can believe that it's important to maintain a positive EV on your multi-race bets and think that it's okay for there to be backup tickets. You know, we've gotten into this either or world where you have to be one yeah, or the it's not other. Accurate. And there's, yeah, it's yeah. just, there's, there's, you can be both, right? Thinking that it is okay to make backup tickets and also that you want to create as much equity in the sequence as possible. Those are not mutually exclusive. And I mean, I'll point to the fact that in 2016, when I had the pick five syndicate together, and I mean, we hit a pick five for $110,000 that was a backup ticket. So, I mean, it was, I had, I had it three times. And, um, and and it was a sequence where I had a 36 to 1 A. I had a, a lone A that was frosted at three to five. I had two A's in the second leg, one of which was the favorite, the other of which was about six to one. Two A's in the second to last leg that were the two favorites. And three A's in the last leg that ended up being the three favorites. So, I mean, it was a sequence where we were ideally suited to getting the right combination of things happen. And, I mean, it was it paid 36 grand, and we had a dead heat in one of those legs. I mean, if we had won it outright, if we lost it outright, then we wouldn't have won shit. But, you know, if we won, you know, I mean, if she ended up winning the photo, then we, you know, we would have had, we would have made 200 grand, right? So, I mean, the point being that you can't, especially in these super competitive races at Saratoga with big fields and so much contention, you cannot squander a good opinion on a price horse because you're being a hard ass about only going one or two deep. At the same time, I don't want to turn this individual, despite my personal distaste for them, into some sort of like straw man uh, about this argument. I do have deep sympathy for the idea that you should choose your pools very, very carefully. And Andy would obviously also agree with this, no doubt. And, you know, I do think sometimes and, and where we do it on we do it on these shows. Look, when part of our mission is, hey, we want you to promote X pool. And we're going to do that. We're going to literally getting paid to do that. But I don't want to do that at the expense of saying, honestly, keep your wagering as simple as possible. If you can, if you can make it a win bet, make it a win bet. If you can play an exact instead of a trifecta, do that. Like use your actual opinion of what's going to happen to shape these plays. You don't. I think a, a very easy way to lose more money than you should is to always play the most complicated bet. And as a result of having the mentality of, oh, I have to play the pick five using too many backups and backups you, you don't like. Obviously, the more you're going to gain a lot of equity when you can throw out favorites you don't like. Probably the number one thing you can do to gain equity, in, in addition to having super strong um, you know, opinions about a single, perhaps, the, these are great tools to produce equity. But if you reflexively do it one way or the other, you're costing yourself. You need to you know, really allow the bet you make to be reflective of, of what's going on in your mind. I mean, Mike Maloney writes so well about this in, in, uh, in betting with an edge, but anyway, it's a good, good discussion to have. And people usually uh, compliment us when we have these sort of uh, more in-depth um, wagering conversations on the show. So uh, I'm glad we went on that tangent. Yeah, definitely. I agree with all those sentiments for sure. And um, I think there's a lot to be, to be said about the topic all in all, you know, and I think that Saturday's, Pick six is a good example because everybody was kind of faced with the decision of what to do with uh, reinvestment risk and the race with Bleecker Street and Rougier. And I think the, the inclination was to rely on one of or both. And it turned out that a logical alternative beat each of them. And I think you created a ton of value in beating each of them. So, you know, it, it was 
I would have been alive for six of six if the two, three, or eight had won the first leg, and I would have been beaten by the thirteen because I didn't have two two backup tickets. So you know that's why I paid three hundred grand. But you're gonna so put you were in- you were you you were smart enough to use Baby Yoda over reinvestment risk is what you're saying also. Uh, you know what I, I what I did, Pete, was I used the. Uh, reinvestment risk as an A and Baby Yoda as a B, and that was it. I just used those two, and, and that was it. And and Jack Jenkins and I went over the sequence quite a bit. And so I said to him, it's just going to be – he originally said to me, I think we should use the five and nine as A's. And my problem was that the ticket was just getting too expensive. The other thing is that he and I really didn't like Flamingo Hawk in the first leg. So that was – you know, we didn't see Flamingo Hawk working out a trip from the rail. And um, it ended up that he was just much better than those horses. That was always going to be kind of a tricky leg, but – yeah, I, I thought that there was there was enough skepticism on my part of reinvestment risk when push came to shove, and and there was it was very enticing in thinking about how much value there was in beating him. I mean, that was smart. I I went down with the ship on that one, so that was just the just the way it goes sometimes. Well, and you all wish right, we'll you had gotten a little more run for your money, right? I mean, he just didn't do any oh, running it was at awful. all. It was really no, it was bad. awful. Yeah, yeah so. it was one of those. I say so often, and we've said so often on these airwaves about you know the the the, the these horses. Where in the where in the old days, unambitious spotting of horses, you know, would be these big red flags. I typically don't feel that way at Saratoga. That was one of those races where somebody who said the unambitious spotting was a red flag, which I don't think. I'm not saying that's why the horse didn't win. I mean, sometimes they don't run. They're uh, they're animals. You know, I mean, what are, what are you what are you supposed to do? But it did it did pay to take the cynical view of the placement in that in that whether or not that had anything to do with the lack of performance or not. I don't think it did. I think the horse was as well men as could be and just didn't fire. Would you agree with that? I think there's a very strong argument to be made for that. The other thing that sort of kind of makes you raise an eyebrow is that um, they had one nomination for the Alfred G. Vanderbilt, which is going to be run on, on July 30th. And there were eight noms that came in late. There's no way that Chad hadn't been told by somebody in the racing office, hey, by the way, the Vanderbilt's going to come up really light. And and he would have just put him on ice for two more weeks to run him in the Vanderbilt, even with the goal being the forego. He ain't going to be in the forego either. So, you know, you would have you would have thought that either the Nehrud or the Vanderbilt or something like that, there was going to be an opportunity for him having run in two straight grade ones. And, and so, yeah, I think in retrospect, the very, the very conservative placement was indicative of uh, the fact that he just doesn't have I, – I don't, I, I don't think he has much left. That's interesting. I mean, it's a fair point, and that's certainly the way I used to look at the world before it became so obvious that horses spotted uh, – who were spotted at Saratoga, who were appointed to Saratoga, it just means so much more than money. Winning means so much more than money for for connections that I I tend to be very forgiving of that sort of thing up here. But this is absolutely a data point in the other direction. Nick, we'll be back. Um, We'll we'll be doing shows on carryover days. If we get one this week, we'll be back for that. Folks can read you for free – um, daily on Saratoga Racing Days in the moneypodcast.com with your free analysis. And then if you want the, the, the little bit of a, a peek behind the curtain at some of Nick's macro thoughts about what's happening at the meet, subscribe to In the Money Plus in the moneypodcast.com slash plus. Uh, I will be talking to you in a couple of days, a day or two, about all things uh, pertaining to Monmouth, I'm sure. And I look forward to seeing you this weekend. Sounds great, my friend. Enjoyed it. And I will uh, talk to you soon. We'll have Pat Cummings in the house right after this. As the summer heat starts rolling in, July brings us another Breeders' Cup Challenge Series win, and you're in race. The TVG.com Haskell Stakes for three-year-olds. Tune in Saturday. 
July 23rd, with live coverage starting at 5 p.m. Eastern on CNBC. The winner is going to receive $150,000 in entry fees paid by the Breeders' Cup, $10,000 award to the nominator, a $10,000 travel allowance for horses stabled outside of Kentucky, and, of course, automatic entry into the $6 million Longines Breeders' Cup Classic on November 5th. Also winning your in action this weekend in England, the, the King George and Queen Elizabeth Stakes. We're going to be having coverage of that on the network later this week as well. To learn more, go to breederscup.com. Today's show also brought to you in part by BetMakers. Fixed odds betting powered by BetMakers is back and in effect at Monmouth Park. Great early returns, 70% of winners paying more on fixed odds than they are on the tote. What a weekend it's going to be with the fixed odds betting on this big stakes racing for the Haskell and all those other stakes. Can't wait to see how it turns out. This is an exciting new way to bet that really puts the power to get value in your hands because the odds you bet are the odds you get. Going to hear a lot more about fixed odds opportunities all week long and throughout the season on In The Money Media. Really look forward to working with our friends over at the BetMakers. Next up on the show, very happy to welcome back a popular guest. We talk with him about all things related to the horse racing industry. And sometimes we make him pick a horse or two as well. He is from the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation. Pat Cummings. Pat, what's going on? Peter, hello. Happy Saratoga. Happy summer. Uh, Good to be back with you. And going to get to see you in person. We've got, uh, as you've heard about elsewhere on this show, the Haskell coming up this weekend. And I understand you're going to be making the trip to the Jersey Shore. Very much looking forward to it. Very much uh, excited to uh, enjoy the fixed odds offerings. Uh, I had the pleasure of doing so uh, before the Belmont this year when I was up in the area. And uh, we'll be back for a nice big race and some stakes races and it's, it's really always a fun day and uh, first Haskell in, in quite a number of years. So I'm really looking forward to it. That's great stuff. From an industry watchdog perspective, I, I don't know how much you've looked at the numbers, et cetera, about what's been going on at Monmouth, but how do these early returns look to you? Uh, very positive um, from a admittedly incredibly small sample. Uh, I happened to be at the SBC America Summit in uh, Secaucus uh, last week, and there was a panel uh, headed by Betmakers North America CEO Christian Stewart, Bill Pascrell III, and Dennis Drazen from Darby Development, Monmouth, and the New Jersey Thoroughbred Horseman. And in that, Christian identified that um, I believe it was. 10% of all on-track handle at Monmouth Park on Monmouth races has come from the six windows taking fixed odds bets. Interesting. So I took that as, I mean, from, again, a very small sample of both race days and literally opportunities. This is not on self-service machines yet. That's coming. It's not online. That's coming. Right. There, there's a very... Um, deliberate rollout of this. Uh, I thought that number was maybe a little bit more than I would have thought considering how many places there are to bet paramutually on track. It's a Um, great point. Yeah. And it's one of these things where we'll talk about this more as we get more data. But of course, this is 
I don't know, 0.01, maybe 0.001 of the business that I imagine fixed odds will ultimately be doing as part of this uh, as part of this rollout. So we're not going to be drawing too many conclusions yet. I have seen the stat about the that we read on the ads all the time for them, the 70% of the winners paying more on fixed odds than on the tote. As time goes on, I'd love to talk to you and we don't, you know, we don't have to do it now, but talk about what what effect is it having on the as best we can guess on the paramutual pools. And then of course, are there any uh, integrity concerns that have, uh, that have popped up as, as many of the opponents of fixed odds seem to think uh, could happen. Um, but I mean, I, am I right in saying it's too early to even speculate wildly about that stuff right now? Yeah, look, we have plenty of integrity concerns on the paramutual races that take place. And I think we are grossly underreporting them and under following them. Uh, so, so that's one particular you know, anyone who wants to throw an in- some integrity shade because of a new product, um, I say, well, you know, you haven't really been paying attention to the existing product for decades. Um, <laughs> so, so that's one area. Um, and, and yes, in that sense, it is too early. But uh, to the greater point, I think uh, it, it is actually healthy to have a, a starting point to kind of iron out the the issues and the tech and and get things up and running um, because you know I just don't think horse racing in North America is in a position to wave off any new form of betting on horse racing when you consider that's a key point yeah that that that, that uh, adjusted for inflation wagering on American racing is down you know in the ballpark of fifty percent over the last twenty years. And that undersells the actual shift in the way play has changed paramutually in that 20 years ago, only 8% of total play was coming from computer robotic wagering interests. And now that number is probably somewhere between 30 and 40% overall on the low side of that. But within individual pools at certain tracks, I think there are there are times where it, it, it goes above 40 and, and maybe even 50%. Now, that's in certain instances, not overall. But, you know, w- when you consider that, what does that mean? The, 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 the wholesale American kind of mainstream play on racing has declined significantly in the last two decades. So anyone who wants to fret, gnash fists and, and just, you know, clutch pearls over the threat that racing um, that, that fixed odds presents seems to be like ignoring the giant. Uh, experience over the last two decades of just really poor um, business growth in mainstream racing wager. Last point I'll make before we move on to the next topic is I would also think that in, in specifically in terms of integrity, the footprints that fixed odds bets leave are going to be a useful tool in ferreting some of that stuff out that can get lost in, I don't know, say, and I'm just being theoretical here, the trifecta pool. Yeah. And in the, the greater melange of paramutual wagering, it's, um, you know, we have our wagering insecurity series, which we've talked about on the show in the past from last, uh, last spring, spring, 2021 really kind of delved into the, the myriad issues that exist in this space. And I don't think we've done a very good job of, of being on top of that, with paramutual wagering. So fixed, I think offers a, a new chance to kind of restart in some of these areas. And frankly, I think the competition will be good for paramutual wagering. It generally is when it comes to business, isn't it? Let's pivot though. Really surprised in a very positive way 
by news that I took to be a huge win for for horse players and, and people like us, whose job it is to market horse racing, about the change in the breakage rules. Not, and, you know, hey, I'd have been thrilled to come on here and talk about new breakage rules in, in Colorado. We're talking about them in the state of Kentucky. Pat, what were your emotions upon hearing this news? And, and give us a, a quick little synopsis of how we got here. Yeah, it was very fun. I was at Ellis Park last Friday for the launch. Uh, went very smooth uh, on track, I can tell you that. Um, look, this has been a multi-year process, Pete. Uh, it was the first white paper the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation ever published back in September of 2018 saying pricing matters. The way in which we price our bets matters to our customers, how they participate. And, you know, we could talk about takeout all we want, but, uh, you know, the paramutual bet takers have been absorbing a portion of every win uh, in the form of breakage, rounding down of winning dividends to typically the nearest dime, occasionally to the nearest nickel, depends. New York is one small outlier in that space, but this has been happening for more or less the last hundred years um, with limited exception. And, uh, you know, it, it's time to give back and, and give this, this retained change back to customers. Um, and we actually started with New York in terms of the advocacy. We started with New York because New York already has the most liberal breakage policy up to this point. Um, on payouts under $10, the, the rounding is to the nickel. Um, and so that's why in, in a place like New York, you'll see 310, 320, 330, 350, 370. You don't see that in many other places. So we, we tried in New York. The appetite really wasn't there. And uh, in sometime in early 2019 or maybe late 2018, I sat down with Senate Majority Leader Damon Thayer here in the state of Kentucky, as well as uh, Representative Adam Koenig who chairs a committee that really oversees uh, wagering and, and uh, all things really vice-related. And uh, he was very amenable to it and, you know, said this is very interesting. He's a horse player himself, uh, which was helpful. And it just kind of went into the back of his mind. And when historical horse racing was up for discussion uh, to really uh, codify it in statute here in Kentucky, uh, one of the outcomes was that there was going to be a paramutual taxation task force to look at all things paramutual wagering, uh, to make sure that the tax rates were standardized, uh, or, or to identify even the best tax rate for historical horse racing machines in the state, and some, plenty of other topics. And Chairman Koenig decided that this was the opportunity to uh, introduce the, the, the penny breakage. And it passed, it was signed. It went into effect on July 15th at Ellis and going forward uh, across the uh, the landscape of uh, Kentucky racing, uh, paramutual wagering, thoroughbred, standard bread, quarter horse, wherever they may be, uh, we're paying to the penny in, in, in Kentucky and anywhere you may reside betting on Kentucky racing. It's great. It, it's hard to find a better example of what this means for the player than the very first race. Do you want to walk oh, through that example? Uh, as I, I tweeted at the time, three to five never looks so good. Uh, in the first race at Ellis, uh, the winner paid $3.38. Now that's one nineteen for a dollar. And so what that would have meant is into the old system, and frankly just about every race run in America, 
uh, that 119 um, would have been rounded down to 110. And, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you, you're, it's not as, as you, know, you would have seen a total return at that point of, uh, for a $2 bet, you would have seen 320 and you got 338 instead. Uh, and uh, Marshall Graham uh, tweeted this uh, as well subsequently that in that very first race, the wind pool takeout would have been 22% when you added the actual takeout plus the breakage that would have been retained from this three to five chance winning. Instead, it was 17.6 or 7%. Um, huge. It's the perfect example. Perfect it's example. perfect example for us to point to. Now, obviously, this is not a 5% takeout reduction across the board. I'm sure you've looked at numbers. In aggregate, if I pulled, I probably should have prepped me for this, but I'm having a feeling you'll be able to come up with something on the fly if you don't know the answer, answer. But in aggregate, what level of takeout reduction are we thinking the penny breakage will equate to? And, and not, you know, I, I understand. I'm asking you this on the fly. Yeah. You, you don't have to be, you know, 100% accurate on this, but your best guess of, of approximately what that oh, I think it's in that area of one and a half percent. Um, okay. of effective takeout. I think it's become very clear and the early feedback I've received from some players who reached out completely unsolicited. It's like, until I saw the numbers on my ADW, on the feed, it just never really hit me the extent of this um, and, and what it can really mean to me, the way I play, how I play, how I bet, the returns. I had one player say to me, uh, you know, I bet a horse to place. I thought he was a sure thing. I wanted the quick return. I got 228 instead of 220 and realized that's a 40% return of my prop or a 40% increase in my profit. That's substantial, right? Um, and and look, we're, we're talking about Ellis in the middle of July. What's this going to look like? Churchill, September, Kentucky Downs, Keeneland Fall, Breeders' Cup. Um, How about a little race called the Kentucky Derby? Right. So <laughs> it, it just it spreads across the whole thing. Um, so so it it really is a a, a real win uh, across the landscape for for customers. Well, you guys, you and 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 the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation had so many good so many good ideas, so many good papers, so many things put out there, and I can recall. At, at times during your your time there and all the fine work you've done, being like these guys are doing such good work, can we get can we get a signature <laughs> win, something to show that all this is worth it? And the industry, you know, I never questioned your work. I questioned the industry at times, or in the fact of like, can somebody put together more compelling arguments that can that can still be ignored? I was frustrated on your behalf. So I imagine there's a tremendous amount of relief to see something like this go through in a jurisdiction like Kentucky. Yes, it was very rewarding to see it. And I found myself checking the the, the Ellis results uh, all weekend, really, just, just for pure uh, smiles, really. Um, it was great. Um, it is, it's, it's very rewarding to see it and to know that players are getting more. That said, is there more to do? Uh, of course there is. Uh, this is not the end. Um, you know, we, we, we've got the, the, you know, we've been very big on the harmonization of racing rules and category one is coming to Oklahoma in September. So we're very excited about that and, and hope that that starts, you know, and affects some dominoes across other states. And I hope other states follow the breakage lead here. I had one 
kind of uh, the key uh, executive in the wagering space reach out to me from a racetrack, reach out to me first thing Monday morning and said, you know, tell me how this went. Um, what, what were the steps? How did it go? I thought that was a very positive and encouraging sign. Is I, I would say this person from a major jurisdiction. So, uh, yeah, hopeful, and I hope it's the trend, and I think people are really going to start noticing it far more um, as, as the bigger meets get, get rolling uh, later in the year. You talk about the bigger picture, and now we get into the – we, we close the, the celebratory portion of the talk, and we get into the tough questions because I did have a question from a, a listener, very sharp guy, who uh, you know saw me and you uh, trumpeting this achievement on Twitter – and said, yeah, okay, the, you know, penny breakage, but, you know, why are we just talking about that when they, in this sharp uh, commenter's view, that has a lot less of an effect on the overall market than what uh, Churchill Downs' negative effect happened because of the change in takeout, raising that about 2.5%. And he asked, is it possible that penny breakage is just much ado about nothing and the pain in the butt for every teller out there. I have an answer, but I, I wanted you to, t- to tackle this. One. Yeah, I can say from the teller's perspective, uh, or at least the management of, of how customers are cashed, I saw different experiences at Ellis. I saw some customers literally paid to the penny for those tellers that had them. I saw customers being given uh, vouchers for the loose change and you know adding them up, myself included, to be fair. Um, and then there were plenty of, you know, machines where you just, you know, chuck the ticket in and, and kept betting off of a, a bigger amount than you would have had uh, the previous day of racing. Uh, so it, it works in, in a variety of ways. There were no excessive lines or queues. They didn't have more staff on hand and it was a typical Friday day at Ellis park. And I, I don't think that, um, you know, OTBs around the country where people were betting in cash were, were uh, stymied by uh, all of the, the penny payouts. Um, I don't think it's going to create some sort of havoc on Derby Day either. Uh, it, it is very manageable once someone gets accustomed to what, they're, to what they're doing and how they handle it. Giving the change on a voucher seems like it might be an interesting solution for a day like uh, Kentucky Derby Day. Obviously, at some point, at the end of the day or whatever, the, the, those things have to be uh, that those have to be cashed, or maybe there could be a dedicated line. I mean, look, I think at the end of the day, most people are going to take it in the form that they have in an easy form, like off the voucher, or say, as I, I mean, I wouldn't aren't most play people just going to say keep the change, even horse players. Um, for sure. At the end of a day with 19 cents, I, 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 we'll see as it plays out. But I don't – I think that the, the the gain, no matter how you estimate what this does to the effect of takeout, whatever that gain is, I think is better than this – what I'm hoping is just a minor logistical hassle that may even be less than that. I uh, totally agree. And to the to the kind of greater point that the that this observer raised to you – Nothing has stopped racetracks in the past from ignoring pricing and raising takeout or introducing more churn-killing exotic bets. Um, There have been no no law has essentially required operators to kind of look the other way and just you know increase takeout a little bit here, a little bit there, and and charge the wagering customers more. Here's a law that actually does the opposite. And so if nothing stopped racetracks before, 
Uh, there's not anything that's necessarily going to stop them in the future from hiking takeout wherever they think that they can, right, w- within statutory uh, requirements. Uh, and Kentucky does have statutory requirements on on takeout. They can only go to a certain point. Um, so, so could they raise rates, raise fees, raise takeout at some point in the future if they think there's a need to make up for? Of course. But nothing stopped them before there was any penny breakage. And I don't think this is necessarily going to trigger uh, them to, to do something immediately to, to do that. Pricing matters. The competition for our customers' dollars, both on the legal and illegal markets, is greater than it's ever been before. Um, there are so many different wagering opportunities. So much cash is being thrown at players in states with, with legal sports betting at present in this tremendous race to acquire customers. Racing needs to make its product as competitive as possible. And we're very happy to look at this as uh, one way in which racing is getting a little more competitive, even if the the operators had not too much to do with it. And talking about Churchill specifically, I I think part of my answer to the the correct, in in many ways, but very cynical observation would be that it's an apples and oranges thing. Churchill didn't have anything to do with this breakage situation. So without Without it, you'd still, you know, take that two and a half increase and and add on, you know, more, add on more to it. And, and of course, you know, that that increase, I think, is problematic to the overall economic ecosystem of uh, Kentucky racing nationwide. But, you know, it's it's just a different it's it's a little there's a little bit of what about ism in it. Yes, yes, uh, very much so. The big the big win on the on the uh, kind of a betting specific level, Pete that I think I want people to walk away with is that in Kentucky place and show betting has now become competitive. And where can you say that uh, pretty much anywhere else in America? You, you can't, right. Um, that you are now getting a full return for horses that run second or third. When, um, like I said, you know, sometimes you'd, you'd be walking out with, with a, a, you know, a significantly reduced profit, on a place or a show bet. Now that's not the case. And for as much as we have versioned exotic wagers and they draw plenty of attention and tickets and look, there's plenty of that on the network here too, right? Uh, it's across the sport. It's become endemic to racing. Um, this goes in the other direction. This focuses on churn, getting more money back in the hands of customers so that they can start the takeout cycle anew. And we think that is long-term more valuable for the greater industry than one pick five bet or certainly a jackpot uh, bet of any type. Uh, And it's maybe a new way to start looking at things. I'm excited about it. Uh, It's just a start. It's not a cure-all. Our problems aren't all solved. We're going to keep, you know, going forward and and, and trying to work on those. But uh, I think it's a, it's a really significant accomplishment. Um, It's a benefit for players and I hope more will follow soon. I, I, I'm hoping, Pete, that it gets to a point where, you know, you just have to. Um, that that this is really going to stand out for Kentucky in the in the fall months. Um, and I, I don't know how players are going to avoid uh, choosing to, to wager on racing in Kentucky. Well, that makes sense when you're dealing with a product of that uh, quality and, and also something advantageous like this in those specific pools by by choosing your battles wisely and choosing your spots correctly. Uh, 
there's going to be more money going into the hands of punters. While I have you, if you have another minute yep, for me, it sure. took you longer sure, sure, sure. than I said, I did want to ask about this story that I'd, I'd seen a little bit about, you know, early days of <laughs> you know, July 19th now, we've got some uh, early days of, of HISA at some things that, that have been described as growing pains with this bizarre situation, that's all I can call it, that happened at Belterra. For those who haven't really been paying attention, um, what what happened out there with the new uh, HISA whip rule? Yeah, the um, on July 13th, there was a demotion uh, before the race was made official due to excessive use of the whip. And a horse that finished second in a five-horse field where there were only four betting interests, mind you, uh, was demoted from second place to last. And the explanation was excessive use of the whip. Uh, this was contrary to the uh, rules laid out by the authority. This was not the intention. The authority went on record as saying this was uh, a um, this was growing pains, I believe is the quote in their statement, and that the, the act of the Ohio stewards to demote the horse from the parimutuel placings was outside of the expectations of, of what is required in such incidents for a jockey. A mistake. Yes, it was. <laughs> a uh, for a jockey that used the whip in excess of uh, nine strikes, so the tenth striker beyond um, leads to a loss of purse earnings, and so this was a mistake by the Ohio stewards at Belterra. There was about twenty thousand dollars in the win play show exact in trifecta pools. A good amount of that was affected by this, not the win pool, but uh, all the others were affected, and. Uh, you know, very unfortunate. And uh, I think it is fortunate in the long term that it didn't take place in a bigger race with bigger handle. Um, but this one particular example, I think, will actually go a long way to ensuring that stewards don't make this mistake twice. Uh, the authority getting involved, communicating with stakeholders. Again, it didn't go well. I feel very bad for those who, who who bet on this four to one shot to run second in the fourth race at Belterra on July 13th. But I truly hope that, that it, it doesn't happen again. And there's every reason to think that um, the, the chances of it happening again are, are pretty remote. In getting back to the tough questions, in a day and age with account wagering, isn't there a way to try to make the people whole who were who were wronged here? When you make a mistake of that magnitude, aren't you supposed to come out of pocket to make good with your customers? Yes, uh, you would like to think that. I, I know there are ways to do it. I know that the UK tote did this uh, when there was an incident uh, where the pools had been left open uh, accidentally back during kind of the pandemic shutdown months, and they went back and credited uh, all the customers who were affected negatively by it uh, out of their own pocket. It's just not the same here. Uh, and I, I, I'd We're not like, expecting to see that happen is what you're telling yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. I'd, lo I'd love to see it happen, Pete. I'd love to see someone proactively do that. I, I think there'd be great uh, PR. Uh, and, now, the and, goodwill you yes, engender alone. Correct. So um, unfortunate. Uh, and, and, and look, again, I, I don't want to, to make it seem as though it's not important in that uh, the, the people weren't negatively affected. They absolutely were. But fortunately, on a very small scale relative to the kind of the greater the greater scheme, and I hope that, that this one example uh, will be truly a one-off. Any other observations in the early uh, HISA era? 
just getting started. Um, you know, different states, different tracks, different costs. Naira's implemented a a per start fee. I've heard of this at some other tracks. I've heard other tracks that are waiving it and covering the cost themselves. It really varies. Uh, it may become a competitive point of saying, you know, come come race at our track because we won't ha- charge you HISA fees. Uh, I could see that coming into the to the equation down down the way here a little bit, but it's all due to get more expensive starting next year, and so maybe that will change. Right now, the the costs for horsemen are are limited to uh, the racetrack safety portion and not the anti doping medication control. So there's more to come on that. Um, I, I still think it's a little bit too early. Uh, we're just uh, 18 days into the heist era or so, um, and there's there's a lot more to come. So uh, staying closely attuned to it, but overall, I'd say we're uh, neutral to positive. Gotcha. Okay. And in terms of the costs of paying for the 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 new medication rules, that's what you're talking about. That that's what that per start fee is meant to is meant to to go to. Has and also along those same lines, has there been any cost cost to us to the horse players thus far associated with the, the implementation of the various HISA rules and regs? Nothing that I've known or seen, uh, but the costs that are being applied now to the states. Uh, some of which are getting passed down to tracks and tracks may be sharing some of it with horsemen. And that, that does not include testing. Uh, testing costs are not applicable until sometime in 2023. So I don't think there's any advanced charging going on here. So the costs are due to increase, but uh, in, in much of the public dialogue, some of it is out there and available for, for you know people to, to watch videos on YouTube and, various social media streams of, of, of meetings that HISA has had, um, you know, the, 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 the costs are still kind of unknown. Um, it has not been really delineated. There's not exactly like a line item of here's how much a post-race test cost. Here's how much an out-of-competition test cost. What's going to be very different about this is that the testing itself is being done by a third party that has not been involved in, uh, you know, competition animal testing before been involved in human athlete testing, but not, not equine athlete testing before. It is a group that is very well known in professional and collegiate sports, a group uh, called Drug-Free Sport International. But there is, is nothing um, in their background um, about uh, testing with equine athletes in racing. So that's going to be new, new procedures and protocols. And uh, there, there's a lot more we're going to learn in the coming months about what happens when, when we turn to 2023. This organization you mentioned, this is instead of the USADA, Correct. which was, of course, sort of that, uh, from a PR point of view anyway, debacle last year when that, which had been sort of trumpeted as as the one of the reasons to, to support HISA, went away very quickly and quietly. But they did, you know, in their time frame, come up with another organization that, while I wouldn't say has anywhere near the scope of USADA, it would certainly be, you could say, head fake towards that kind of uh, that kind of legitimacy let's hope so what i'm hearing though basically more questions than answers so far with the in in the heisa era but we're taking a wait and see approach that's right uh pete and i think it's well well worth it to do so um it's not going to be pretty if things you know remain opaque uh or at least uh questionable Right. Um, if, if you know, the more information, the more transparency, the better. We've said that across, 
you know, from the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation's perspective, uh, across the, the, the pantheon of racing, every element of the sport needs to be more transparent. And that's certainly going to be the case here. And I also think that people can't be asking for transparency alone coming from HISA and not from other places. We need it in every element of the sport. We need it in stewards' decisions, in questioning jockeys about uh, in-race behavior. Transparency is good for betting, right? Better integrity leads to better betting. And uh, that, I think, is a win for, for the entire sport. His name is Pat Cummings. You can follow him on Twitter at Pat Cummings, T-I-F, and check out racingideas.com if you want to read the praises or the white papers themselves for the fantastic work he's done over the last several years. Always a pleasure to have you on these airwaves, and I look forward to seeing you at Monmouth Park this weekend. Very much so, Peter. Uh, safe travels, and good luck to everybody. That's going to do it for this edition of the show. I'd like to thank Pat Cummings and Nick Tamaro for their contributions today. Also, our founding partners, the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation. Wait a second. I, I always make that mistake in reverse when I'm introducing Pat. Founding partners, the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, and, of course, 10 Strike Racing. Been in Saratoga for three days and still haven't seen Marshall Graham. What's wrong with me? Around here, we always like to root for the purple and black. This show's been a production of In The Money Media. Our business manager is Drew Coatney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Ginchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornatal. May you win all your photos.